you know, we should all see journalism as an essential piece of our democracy. And if people are afraid to report wrongdoing, well, then wrongdoing will never come to light. And I think that we just have to remember that despite the obstacles, um, the reasons for coming forward and the reasons for speaking to journalists or, you know, the reasons for making public wrongdoing, they're, they're very powerful and very profound and they're only going to help our society become better. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The brick crashed through Lauren Chuljan's window, accompanied by a message scrawled on the side of her house in red spray paint. This is just the beginning. Chuljan had a good idea what this attack was about. She's a senior reporter and producer at New Hampshire Public Radio. She'd been investigating alleged sexual misconduct by Eric Spofford, the founder of Granite Recovery Centers, New Hampshire's largest substance use disorder treatment and rehabilitation network. As she found more and more women who told of being sexually harassed and abused by Spofford, Chuljan has faced mounting threats, lawsuits, and ultimately attacks on her home and the homes of her parents and editor. Spofford denies the sexual misconduct allegations. If the attacks and lawsuits were intended to silence Chuljan, they failed spectacularly. In June, NHPR released a seven-part podcast series, The Thirteenth Step, hosted by Lauren Chuljan. The series investigates Spofford and systemic abuse in the substance use disorder treatment industry. New York Magazine recently named The Thirteenth Step one of the best podcasts of the year. In late June, several weeks after the podcast dropped, federal authorities charged three men for their role in the attacks on Chuljan's house. The complaint said that a close personal associate of Spofford's solicited the attackers. Spofford has also sued NHPR for libel and demanded that it retract the stories about him. The attacks occurred two days after the news organization refused to take down the story. A New Hampshire judge dismissed the libel complaint last year, but Spofford has now demanded access to Chuljan's interviews and notes. NHPR is currently fighting the request. The attacks on Lauren Chuljan take place within a larger context of journalists being increasingly targeted. Former President Donald Trump frequently urges his followers to confront journalists and calls them enemies of the people. Last year, 41 journalists were physically assaulted, according to U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, and there's been a rise in defamation and libel suits. I spoke to Lauren Chuljan about her experience investigating the lucrative substance use disorder treatment industry and becoming the target of attacks. Lauren Chuljan, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let me start by asking you where I'm speaking to you, because I know that has been uh, not uh, part of your story in the last few months. Yes, I'm back. I'm home now. Um, I am home now uh, in the basement where I do a lot of my work. <laughs> so when I work remote, I, I am here in the basement. Um, but I'm often at NHPR. Uh, but you're asking because uh, for a time I was not at home, uh, just kind of riding out uh, all the excitement around the podcast, let's say. 
And how long were you away? You say in your podcast, you identify that you're in Chicago in your final yeah. episode. How long were you away, which I understand was for your own security? Yeah, a couple of weeks. Um, it was for my own security. It was suggested uh, many, many months ago um, that that would be a good precaution to take um, in case there was any sort of response that I would be um, far away uh, for my safety, for my family's safety. But also, um, you know, this was on the advice of a security co consultant that works with journalists. Um, and we took his advice pretty seriously. So um, Chicago is a place that I love. So it, it was a nice, you know, had a nice element to it too. Have you ever felt the need in your career to relocate out of concern for your safety? No, certainly not. All right. Well, let's begin at the beginning here and just tell us what your job is at New Hampshire Public Radio. Yeah, so I am what's called a senior reporter and producer on the document team. And to decode that a little bit, basically what I do is long form, sometimes investigative audio documentaries, so to speak, which mostly takes the form of podcasts or long form uh, audio features on the radio. So we're part of the newsroom. Um, we cover news related things, but Usually they're stories that like take a little bit more time or have happened over a period of time. Um, the document team is myself, my colleague, Jason Moon, who has produced the very popular Bear Brook podcast series. Um, my editor, Katie Culinary, our news director, Dan Barrick. And I mentioned all these names because we also had a freelance editor come in for this particular project, Allison McAdam. Um, it was a big team effort, um, but usually our team is uh, just the three of us on the document squad, so to speak. How did you first hear of Eric Spofford and Granite Recovery Centers? Yeah, so Granite Recovery Centers is the biggest provider of substance use disorder treatment in New Hampshire, so it's possible that people in Vermont know the name of this facility. Um he has since sold the company, I should say, but even still, this is a big facility that owns, uh, is a big company that owns facilities around the state. And the first time I ever heard of him and this company was actually like during early days of COVID. Um, I had heard about uh, an outbreak there. So I had gotten a tip uh, about one of their facilities called Green Mountain Treatment Center, which is up in Effingham, New Hampshire, and that they weren't really taking COVID very seriously. And so, you know, you hear that. And at the time, early COVID, you know, we were all doing a lot of outbreak stories at the time. I kind of took that one on. Um, and through building sources, I heard that this outbreak was pretty severe. It was December 2020. And, you know, we had patients coming into this place every day. And so that was something that parents and loved ones needed to know. Um, after I published that story, I then got a tip that, as we've been saying, it was effectively someone saying, you think that's bad. Um, and this tip was pretty intense. It was a former clinician at Green Mountain Treatment Center who had quit. And in her words, it was because of sexual misconduct allegations that she had heard about involving Eric Spofford. Eric Spofford was the CEO and founder of Granite Recovery Centers, and had his you know face and name had been a big, big part of the development of these facilities. So to hear that you know the biggest provider of substance use disorder treatment in a state that's struggled, and I know Vermont has too, so much with addiction. 
um, that there might be a problem here. Um, I definitely felt like I needed to start digging and see if there was anything, any truth to that. Talk about the challenge of pursuing in a sexual harassment, sexual abuse, sexual assault stories in the Me Too era. Um, you know, it has really come to the forefront that this is these are not easy stories to tell. It is difficult to corroborate them. So tell me how you began and, and how you began to chase down this story. Yeah, I should say you're exactly right. Any kind of story about sexual misconduct is extremely difficult. These are extremely personal experiences. Also, as we now well know, you know, victims are not often believed. And so it doesn't feel like there's really any usefulness for the person harmed to come forward and go through a traumatic incident. Um, for what? To what end? And in this case, it was exceedingly difficult because you already have that, you know, the societal uh, obstacles of no one believes me. Anyway, um, on top of that, we're dealing with a population that has for, you know, generations been stigmatized, people with substance use disorder. This is a population of people who are in vulnerable positions who unfortunately society doesn't often care enough about, even with all of the great gains we've made over the last few decades. So it was going to be hard. Um, and I think the most important thing that you do as a reporter is you corroborate. It's not like you ever run with just one allegation or one story, right? You have to ask for evidence or anything close to evidence. You have to ask, who have you talked to? Did you tell anyone about this? Did you file any reports? And I will say like a third level of why this was so difficult is because you know, in cases of sexual misconduct that I've covered before, you know, uh, St. Paul's School, people in Vermont may know that that's private school in Concord, um, New Hampshire. I did a lot of reporting about that, but these were documented experiences. There were lawsuits from people who had gone to the school decades prior. There were lawyers involved. You know, there were there were pieces of paper that had some of these allegations on them that make reporting a lot easier. In this case, no one had filed a police report. No one had, you know, written a report. And so a lot of this had to be, you know, so to speak, shoe leather kind of journalism, which was asking these women, what happened to you? And then who did you tell about it? Or what kind of corroborating evidence do you have to suggest um, that can back this up? And that just led to a lot of phone conversations on phone conversations on phone conversations until what we felt we had was solid enough to Put it to our lawyers and fact checkers and say, okay, you know, do we have enough? Talk about the first story you heard that made you realize you were onto something here. So I would say, you know, what it what you might assume is the answer is going to be one of the, the women who was abused, which no doubt, I mean, those stories are incredibly compelling and um are the force of this podcast. But when I knew I really had something was actually at after I had talked to um, the second high ranking employee of Granite Recovery Centers who told me that they walked out and quit because they had heard an allegation of a woman who said that Eric Spofford, the CEO, had sexually assaulted her, that they had a relationship that wasn't always consensual. The woman making this allegation was not just a current employee of Eric's, but a former client of the facility. So this is a woman who's in recovery, would come to Granite to receive treatment, and now is saying to other high-ranking members of the company, including the COO, that I've had a re sexual relationship that wasn't consensual with this person, and now he's retaliating against me for trying to end it. 
I heard that from two very high ranking officials at the company. And by the time I heard the second one um, and that I could hear the stories corroborating each other, that's when I started to realize like there really was something going on here and that it was worth continuing to dig. But I should say, David, like that moment was in January or actually December of 2020. It was in the weeks after the COVID story. And you and I are talking in August of 2023. And so while I had a feeling that these stories were starting to kind of like all fit together like a puzzle, I also still had so much work ahead of me. This is very serious, serious kinds of reporting. When you're, you know, reporting misconduct allegations against someone, that's that's big stuff. That's life altering. Um, and so we wanted to make sure we nailed it down. And we also wanted to make sure we went to Eric and gave him adequate re- chance to respond to all of it. Now, talk about... Um... You know, Eric Spofford, as you describe him, is kind of a larger than life figure. He is very charismatic. He has a backstory that has propelled his whole career. So share that with us. Sure. So Eric Spofford uh, opened his first facility in 2008. It was a sober home in Derry, New Hampshire, in Southern New Hampshire. And he started it because he himself was a person in recovery and noticed that there weren't enough places in New Hampshire for men to go once they had left residential treatment. Eric was um, had substance use disorder. He used heroin for many years. He had overdosed multiple times. According to his story, he had a really, really rough go of it. And so he used his own story of recovery to build this first sober home. He lived in the sober home with these guys. He ran the business. And then this is 2008. So this is like right about when Opioids are extremely problematic in New Hampshire and only going to get worse. And we in New Hampshire needed a solution. We we did not pay at that time um, per capita. We had like the lowest amount of spending on treatment over those next few years compared to, you know, the amount that we needed for treatment. I mean, we just were not doing what we needed to do to help people. And here comes Eric Spofford with this great story of, I'm from Salem, New Hampshire. I'm here to provide a solution. I'm devoting my life to this. And so people in New Hampshire politics were like, great, we really need that. And so Eric then moved from this one small sober home in Derry to owning multiple facilities all across the state of New Hampshire and becoming, as I said before, the biggest provider of substance use disorder treatment in New Hampshire, which meant they took people mostly around our region, but from all over the country. And Eric you know, as the company grew, he also grew into, like you say, kind of a larger than life figure. He's close with our governor or was close with our governor. He was close with other Republican politicians. He'd host fundraisers at his house. He also created quite a social media brand. Um, He became very wealthy through this business. And as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, he actually sold Granite Recovery Centers for what he says was over a hundred million dollars. That's obviously a significant amount of money. And he presents this wealthy lifestyle that he's accumulated through running and selling this business on Instagram for all to see. He's bought a yacht. He owns a multi-million dollar home in Miami. Um, so this is, you know, quite the compelling figure. And I should also say, many people, including sources I talk to say that Eric Spofford and Granite Recovery Centers is the reason that they are in recovery today. So this is someone that accumulated a lot of wealth, but also a lot of trust and power. How do you get rich treating people in substance use recovery? Well, Eric would, uh, actually, Eric has uh, an internet 
uh, I don't know if it's a class, so to speak, but he actually offers uh, anyone who wants to pay him, he'll teach you how he did it. He has this offering on his website. He um, now offers entrepreneurship classes. Um, but in in the general sense, this is an industry that is growing rapidly because there is a great need and there's not a lot of oversight over it. Um, so as it has been in many industries, this often ends up becoming a way for entrepreneurs to make money. This isn't to say that making money is a bad thing, um, but in this very particular kind of healthcare, though, you know, many people still don't consider um, substance use disorder care healthcare, this is a disease we're talking about. And so I think that's where a lot of this gets really complicated, that people are making money off of taking care of people in their most you know, vulnerable position of their life who really, really need help. Um, but there's a lot of venture capital money that's coming in now. There are a lot of like interested bigger businesses that want to like buy up these smaller ones. Um, so there's certainly money to be made. And Eric is a great example of that. And the women who get caught up, and it is um, all women who are um, the victims or the survivors of this. In sexual, my story, yes, but they're certainly story. by no yeah. means the only victims of this kind of 13th stepping style behavior. Yes, in your story. Um, and we should pause here for a moment. Explain this phrase, 13th step. What is it? Sure. Well, I didn't know what it was before either, David. So uh, I, I'm not a person in recovery, though I have a lot of friends and family who are. Um, I don't pretend to know everything about it, but I thought, you know, I had a good sense. And, um, you know, this whole journey for us actually started with a news story, because once I had corroborated enough allegations involving of sexual misconduct involving Eric Spofford, we realized like there was a significant news value in putting that out and not holding on to it for a podcast or documentary, which is what I would normally produce. Um, and, and once we put that out, I had another woman come forward and share an allegation um, of sexual harassment, unwanted behavior with Eric. And, you know, she said, you know what this is, Lauren? this is 13th stepping. I had no idea, like I said, what that was, but essentially 13th stepping is a play on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Many of us are familiar with uh, the 12 steps, AA and its many other forms, NA, um, because it's, you know, one of the most popular forms of recovery in this country. And 13th stepping is essentially that someone later in their sobriety, you know, with many more months or years that has much more grounding and footing and starting their life over kind of, you know, insert verb here, praise on or hits on or flirts with or pursues a relationship with someone who is in early recovery. The key there is that it's someone who has the wherewithal. And then there's the someone who is just trying to find the wherewithal. You know, we talk a lot about active recovery and there are awful stories about the many things that happen in a person's mind when they're, you know, you know, addicted to these substances. And, you know, when you're in early recovery, your brain is just like trying to snap back to normal. Your body in the early days is in painful, awful withdrawal. You're also like having to reteach yourself who you are and what do you want in this world? And, you know, one of my sources said, you don't even remember how you like your coffee. I mean, your drugs have been controlling your life for so long. And so see, the idea of consent in these situations can be really complicated. And while there are, of course, many healthy relationships that have developed in recovery settings, you know, you're starting a new life and you're trying to leave one behind and you want to make new relationships in sobriety, 
But unfortunately, as I learned through this reporting project, that moment in time can be deeply exploited. And that power dynamic of someone who is more later in recovery and is like, oh, let me show you the way with someone who is early in recovery and is looking for a path, that can be extremely problematic. Um, and 13-stepping has kind of become a joke in some circles too. Like, oh, you know, that guy, he's always hitting on the new girls in the meeting. Um, but that kind of, you know, attitude or behavior can be extrapolated to all kinds of unwanted or uncomfortable interactions between people in recovery settings, including treatment. Um, I, I don't want to skip over. You mentioned as an aside, you have many friends and family um, in recovery or who've been affected by substance use. I think it would help people for people who do not know people in recovery to explain what, how you, who these people are in your life, how pervasive and common has it been within your circle, the circle of people who you know and are related to? Yeah. I mean, without getting into other people's stories that, um, you know, are theirs and not mine, I will just say that, you know, in my family, I have a lot of people who are now sober, whose, you know, recovery was hard earned and it's a long, complicated process. And so I've been able to see firsthand in many instances um, how difficult it is, how vulnerable it is, how it affects systems, not, you know, of course, it's the person who has substance use disorder, and then it's the people around them who are also impacted by it. And I just think that, you know, it's so common. And so I, I find it kind of rare sometimes to, to not to judge anyone, but like to find somebody who doesn't know someone or doesn't have a close person in their life who has been through that. Um, I think it's extremely pervasive and common. And you know, whether that was the case or not, it just highlights the need for us to take care of these people that are experiencing these, this illness. It's an illness, it's a disease. And, you know, it, it hasn't for so many years, as I learned through my reporting, been taken as seriously as so many other chronic diseases that we have invested in um, over many years. Um, and I know Vermont, very similar to New Hampshire, it's something that really impacts people, especially in rural areas. Um, where maybe they don't have as good of an access to help. Um, you know, it's a very complicated disease that affects so many of us. And, you know, I just felt like the more I learned about what was going on in this situation, and then the more I learned about how often sexual misconduct was happening in recovery settings around the country, it just felt like a really important conversation to have. Um, not just like, oh, something bad is happening at this one facility, but you know, how, how can we talk about it more openly so that maybe some changes will be made? You mentioned early on in your podcast, which um, I, is really a remarkable story. I mean, you. you had me from the opening uh, scene uh, all the way through, what was it, six, seven, seven episodes. Um, incredibly gripping, incredibly rich and um, poignant. Um, you mentioned at the very beginning that New Hampshire holds two distinctions that no state should be proud of, uh, the highest opioid deaths per capita and the lowest amount spent on recovery. Um, so this is the landscape in which the, your story unfolds. And I was also struck by a statistic where, you know, one of your opening stories was of a woman uh, who Eric Spofford offered a free spot to. And you explain that only one of 10 people who need treatment for recovery actually gets that treatment. Yeah. So we're looking at a, essentially a desert of care 
Yeah. And it, it, we've certainly, you know, we're better off now than we were in some, some ways. I mean, so much work has been done, especially in New Hampshire. And I will say the first New Hampshire specific stat, that was, you know, where we were at around 2008, 2009, when Eric was starting to develop this business. But, you know, the one in 10 stat, that's still true today. And think about all we've endured with the opioid crisis. And now we're into, you know, we've we've had fentanyl. We've had three waves of the opioid epidemic. We've had all sorts of things. Um, I, I just think that it is, it's so much like for us, the New Hampshire, Vermont, rural state story, but it's not. It's an everywhere story. This, you know, it, it was really fascinating to me to learn how different regions or different states do um, oversight of these facilities differently and that there just still continues to not be enough access. Um, yeah, I think that that certainly was a big takeaway. The story that you're mentioning, um, there was a woman who we refer to as Elizabeth, who Eric had given a scholarship to, to get free treatment. And she was uh, experiencing opioid use disorder. And so she goes to treatment, she gets this free ride, which is just so, so rare and so hard to find, just as we've been talking about. And the day that she leaves, um, she gets her phone back, she goes to a sober home and she receives a Snapchat from Eric, explicit Snapchat picture of his penis, a uh, picture that she had not asked for. And here she is, you know, 30, 31 days sober facing this, you know, text from this person who had you know, paid for her treatment. And as she told me, she just, it just put her into such a spiral. Just what, what do you even do in this case? Um, so yeah, that, you know, not everyone gets that opportunity and anyone who has anyone in their family or friends with substance use disorder knows it sometimes feels like a miracle to get anybody into treatment, not only because of access, but because it's a really difficult thing to do when people don't feel ready for it. Um, so yeah, so the stakes are extremely high. Let's talk about the backlash um, right from the start that you encountered when you tried to get comment from Eric Spofford and what happened after your very first story uh, was published, posted on New Hampshire Public Radio. So I should say I presented all these allegations before we published the news story to Eric Spofford and uh, he denied all allegations of sexual misconduct and his lawyer threatened to sue us if we went forward with the story. Uh, we did go forward with the story and um, in the days following the story, my sources, including unnamed sources who had made allegations of sexual misconduct anonymously, but had their voices in the audio, which they consented to, that was their decision. Um, women who did not use their names, also my name sources received uh, legal letters from Eric's lawyers at like nine o'clock at night, the night after the story came out, um, that for many of my sources felt very terrifying. Uh, they didn't know what these lawyer letters were about. They were litigation hold letters, which in many cases are common, you know, like you might be involved in litigation, you know, don't delete anything. But when you've just done this like big courageous thing of like, this is what happened to me, um, I'm going to say it publicly, to receive a letter from a lawyer when in most cases these people didn't have lawyers, um, it was extremely intimidating. So that was the first couple of weeks was kind of navigating that. Um, and there are many ways that that then turned into where we're at now, which is that um, Eric Spofford sued myself, two of my colleagues, and three of my sources for defamation, uh, which is an ongoing uh, legal battle with a hearing today, actually. So I can't get too, too much into that. Um, 
but about a month after, I think what you're asking about is uh, about a month after the news story came out, um, my parents' home, my editor's home, and a house I used to rent in Hanover, New Hampshire, were all vandalized uh, in the same night in April of 2022. And bricks and rocks thrown at windows. Uh, the C word was spray painted in red. Uh, my parents' garage door, my editor and my old house's front door. Um, and it was pretty terrifying. And then unfortunately, a month after that, um, my house and my parents' house again were vandalized. My parents' C word again on the door. Um, and at my house, there was a brick thrown through this like big picture window in my living room. And uh, just the beginning was spray painted in red on underneath the window. Um, so it was a pretty harrowing uh, experience, I think is the understatement of the century. But um, they're actually in the last month, which we may get into, were some arrests in that case. Um, federal prosecutors have charged three men with conspiracy to commit interstate stalking. Um, so that, yeah, it was, it was a long year of knowing in my heart that it was connected to the reporting. Um, not of course, knowing who did it, um, but that it was some way in response. And then in the last month, since the podcast has come out to hear, you know, in a criminal complaint from the FBI that that is in fact what they believe happened was that this was in retaliation for my reporting and was an attempt to harass and intimidate me. Um, so that was a lot, it was a lot. With the attack on your home, the home of your parents and the home of your editor, you had a feeling that it was related to your reporting on Eric Spofford, but you didn't have proof. But then you had proof when it ends up in court, the FBI presents its investigation. And the only reason it ended up in the FBI's hands, am I correct, is that you live in Massachusetts. So this was an interstate crime, right? Yes. Yeah, so I live in Massachusetts. My boss at NHPR lives in New Hampshire. My parents live in New Hampshire. And what the FBI found and presented in their criminal complaint is that purchases were made um, across state lines. So that is like the interstate part of the charges that they've filed, which is that, you know, a brick was purchased at a Home Depot uh, in one state, but that, you know, they were at an ATM in another. And you know, the, the criminal complaint is quite long, but suffice to say that it seems that the federal government definitely put some resources uh, towards figuring out who was involved here and their investigation it also remains ongoing. And where it was left is that the three people, um, at least two of whom have been identified as being in recovery, um, and they, I believe the third person is still on the lam. Is that correct? He's He's been detained. He's been detained. He's been detained. Yeah. And that they were in contact with a close personal associate of Eric Spofford. So that's as close as it has gotten. And that person has not been identified. Am I correct? Or- has he? Well, so the close personal associate. So there are um, multiple, like, so the way that these complaints are written is that people are not named unless they are like 
the ones being charged. So for example, I am victim one and my boss is victim two. Um, subject one is very clearly Eric Spofford. Um, but no, the feds have not identified who subject two is. And why you're asking about that is because subject two, they have identified through phone records and through all kinds of other like investi investigative methods that subject two had called each of the three men who have been arrested. And those three men, the feds have written in this complaint were the ones who threw the bricks or did the actual vandalism, but subject to who they identify as a close personal associate of Eric Spofford, subject one, um, they think that there were phone calls before and after, and that there was a conspiracy involving more people than just those three. Um, and so those are the people who, um, this is, and so those three that are arrested, they believe are not the only people involved in this conspiracy. You update us. There were six episodes. That's what you planned for the podcast. Yes. And then you added an epilogue, a seventh episode to update listeners on this, um, you know, the results of this uh, FBI investigation and the charges being brought. And it's a very powerful moment um, for listeners because we listen in real time. You're a very good podcast producer because you record yourself responding to your colleague who's at the courthouse describing the scene. He says, and this is Jason Moon, I believe, yeah. I felt sad looking uh, as he looked at the people who were arrested for the vandalism. And you yourself sound horrified and emotional. Talk about how you felt on hearing the news. This was a big moment. Who threw the brick through your window and your parents and your editor? Why were you, what was the mix of feelings you felt? Yeah. Um, well, because it's an ongoing investigation, I can't really uh, get into it as much as um, I may be able to get into other things, but I think suffice to say, this all has been so overwhelming um, in part because, you know, the vandalism is horrifying, but it's just one part of this. And, you know, my sources uh, experienced retaliation and, you know, one of the things that was hardest I, I found, I mean, all, a lot of this was hard, but um you know, employee A was another woman we haven't talked about, but someone who worked for Eric and um, he had sent her explicit Snapchats, just like he had sent this woman, Elizabeth. Um, she wasn't in recovery, but she worked for him. And he, she says, sexually assaulted her in his office in the middle of the workday. So this is a person who's experienced a really traumatic thing, telling me about it, comes forward, receives this these legal letters, and for employee A, the letters kept coming. They were very intimidating. She she dealt with a lot. And then, you know, my house gets vandalized and I have to call her and tell her, um, which is a very strange situation for a journalist to be in, to say, well, something happened to me that, you know, may impact you. Um, and she later told me, which is in the epilogue of the podcast, that hearing about the vandalism was the scariest part of all of this. And, you know, what's a reporter to do in that situation? You know, I'm supposed to be, you know, in this story, covering what happens to employee A. I'm not uh, covering, you know, that was not the point to cover what happens to me um, in response and her response to what happened to me. I mean, it's just, it was just a really 
you know, unique situation to be in. And all of this has been very overwhelming. And yet, despite all the obstacles, has felt really important to continue um, because the vandalism, you know, that was an attack on the First Amendment, not just on me, not just about this story. Um, and so that's a lot to to comprehend. And so that's my long way of saying that uh, I have been overwhelmed, but that I have not stopped uh, because it felt too important. The podcast came out uh, June 6th, I think it was. Yes. Mm-hmm. There has been a, a crush of coverage and um, that's a wonderful thing. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and we're now two months later. Um, what what are you feeling now uh, in the wake of all the attention you receive? You've been the subject of a New York Times story. It's been written up in the Washington Post, McNeil Lehrer, or PBS NewsHour, whatever it's called now. Um, so uh, it's a lot. Talk about how you're feeling right now. Well, I mean, yes, it's certainly been a lot. We also uh, were named one of the best podcasts of the year so far in New York Magazine. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I bring that up uh, because I still can't believe that one because, you know, if you're going on a road trip like I do, I'm like, all right, what should I listen to? And you look up one of the best podcasts and that's one of the first links that comes up. So, you know, that was just astounding to see that, you know, for the you know next many months, people could find it just by looking at some of these lists, which is really remarkable. Um, you know, I th- I'm, I'm where I'm, you know, I think I'm proud. I mean, there's no doubt that I'm proud of the work that I've done that my team has done. This was certainly not like a one woman thing. This was a huge team, uh, NHPR, freelance editor, lawyers, um, back checkers. I mean, this was a significant amount of work. And so we're proud that it's complete. But, you know, once the podcast comes out, the emails start coming in. And, you know, I'm fielding a lot of emails from people all over the country who have said that happened to me at this facility or have you heard about this facility in Indiana you know or have you you know it 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 is you know a testament to that you know we were right that this is a systemic problem throughout the country that needs to be reckoned with um but that doesn't make these you know any of those emails easy to read or receive um so it's complicated i'm i'm exceedingly proud of the work and i'm thrilled that it's had such an impact on people and that they are riveted by it and horrified by it. And, um, and yet, you know, that's, it's, it's heavy. It's a heavy topic. Is 13th step the first kind of major deep dive into this issue of the sexual exploitation of people in recovery? Um, first ever. Yeah, well, have there been other, you know, I, well, I'm assuming it's the first for you. It's the um, first for me. Yeah. But, are you aware of any other big journalistic treatments of this issue? Well, I am aware that there was uh, many years ago, a documentary that was made called the 13th step and the woman who pulled it together really like pulled it together on her own and hustled really hard to get it together. And uh, was actually 13th step uh, in when she was younger and she was in AA, I think it was either California or Hawaii. Uh, Monica Richardson is her name. Um, and I talked to her about her experience and um I also know of, you know, not as, you know, 
there's of course great reporting about substance use disorder. There's great reporting about harm reduction. There's great reporting into the seeds of some of these other um, substance use disorder treatment facilities. Reveal had an excellent podcast about addiction treatment. Um, but this this seemed to really uh, cover extensively a problem that had only popped up briefly in certain areas. You know, like I had a great conversation with a writer or with lots of writers, um, but Gabrielle Glazier, you know, she, she was a writer, an investigative reporter who wrote about women and addiction, specifically alcohol's use disorder. And in that book did a chapter about 13th stepping where she actually talked to Monica Richardson and detailed how Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs can be exploited um, and the ways in which that program doesn't work for everyone. Now, I want to be careful and say I know it works extremely well and is very powerful for a lot of people, so I don't want to take anything away from that. But it's also true 